It's a completely different scenario from what people imagined only 20 years ago in that now solar and wind have become so cheap that you can change to them without any economic disbenefit, but actually a gain. Welcome, everybody. This is 100 Climate Conversations. Today is number 25, and this series presents 100 visionary Australians that are taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, which is, of course, climate change. We are recording live today in the boiler hall of the Powerhouse Museum. Before it was home to the museum, it was the Ultimo power station. Built in 1899, it supplied coal-powered electricity to Sydney's tram system into the 1960s. In the context of this architectural artefact, uh, we shift our focus towards the innovations of the net zero revolution. I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting here on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, never ceded. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners, of course, uh, and their ancestors, and I recognise their continuous contribution to country. My name is Nate Byrne. This lovely man sitting next to me is Martin Green, who I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with today and he's a pioneer in solar technology, a true pioneer. Martin is a science chair professor at the University of New South Wales. He's also the founder and inaugural director of the internationally renowned Australian Centre for Advanced Photovoltaics. His research group has developed technology that is featured in over 90% of the world's solar photovoltaic panels. We are so thrilled to have him join us today. So please join me in welcoming Martin Gray. <laughs> Martin, I would like to start by understanding a little bit about where you came from and how you got into solar as your life's work. So what were you doing when it grabbed you and how did it grab you? I first got interested in solar when I was at university. So I won uh, a travelling scholarship. I was educated in Brisbane, University of Queensland, but I won a travelling scholarship to see the world. It was $80. So <laughs> I drove down to uh, Sydney and uh, visited AWA Electronics in Sydney and I got shown a solar panel then in 1969. So that was the first time I saw a solar panel. But during my university study, I got very interested in microelectronics because in that era, they were starting to put more and more transistors onto a chip. I think they were up to about 10 when I got interested, you know, instead of 10 billion or whatever they can do these days. So that was, that was all consuming passion for a while and I was visiting microelectronics companies on this traveling scholarship. But um, as I grew older, I said, oh, do I really want a career in, in this area? You know. Um, making better chips, or is there something I've been doing with a bit more social impact? And it was about the time of the oil embargoes of the 1970s and solar suddenly became to the fore and I realised the skills that I'd picked up in microelectronics could be applied to um, solar energy. So uh, that's how I got interested in the field. Now, we obviously have had photovoltaics in one form or another for quite a long time and long before we were openly talking about carbon-free energy uh, at all. When you came to it, how would you characterise where we were with solar and, and 
how it had developed so far? Yeah, I, I guess the first discovery that you could convert light into electricity happened back in the 19th century. Edmund Becquerel in France did it in 1839. Uh, but it wasn't until 1954 that the first efficient silicon cell was made and, you know, 95% of the cells made today are made from silicon. The start of the modern interest in solar was with that. And there was a lot of excitement. Um, the, it was made at Bell Laboratories, one of the pioneering uh, laboratories in the US in telecommunications and a whole lot of different areas. And it actually made um, a front page on the New York Times in 1954. Um, you know, vast power of sun is trapped by cell using sand ingredients or something like that, some headline like that. So it was caught everyone's imagination and Bell Labs released photos of families crowding around a solar panel, you know, obviously going to do something useful with it. But the costs then were just exorbitant because the, the semiconductor industry was just in its infancy in that era. But um, they managed on the second US satellite that went up, and that was the fourth in history, um, Vanguard One. Um, some proponents of the solar managed to get the solar cells installed onto that uh, satellite. It was a tiny little thing about this big, the satellite. And they worked really well. In fact, embarrassingly well, they, they lasted for over six years up in the tough space environment. And it was, this little satellite was beaming out a radio signal. So it was a bit of embarrassment because it was clogging up the airwaves. But that meant that the, the cells, you know, established themselves as a viable power source for powering um, uh, equipment in space. So when they started getting interested in telecommunication satellites, and the first of these was Intelsat in 1962, the solar cells was the first choice for the power source for Intelsat. So there's very serious development of the cells to put on to um, Intelsat. And that was sort of the start of a era of where cells were the dominant source of power for satellites, you know, for the, well, even up to the present. So their main um, application when I got involved was in powering satellites and they were incredibly expensive, but it didn't matter because the satellite cost a bundle anyhow and the cells were just a minor part of the total cost. Let's talk about how solar panels actually work though. So, so we've got sunlight and sand so far, but I, I assume there are, there are a few more steps involved. What's actually going on when you put a solar panel into sunlight? Yeah, yeah, the, the operation is really very simple, but the physics is quite complex and it wasn't until the 20th century that, you know, you would have been able to understand how they worked. So the solar cells were made before then, but they really didn't have a clue what was going on in them. They were just, well, this is great. But Albert Einstein, one of the things he did, of the many, was he proposed that light, instead of just being waves that all the scientists of the 19th century had proven that light was made of waves. He said that when light interacts with matters, it acts more as if it was made up of little particles. And uh, they've since been called photons. So you can regard the light as beaming, you know, these photons down on you. And, you know, photons have different colours, you know, there's red ones and violet ones and all that kind of thing. So that, that was the important thing, the light comes in little packets known as photons. So these photons enter into the, the um, a material known as a semiconductor and silicon is the best known one. 
uh, which has very special uh, properties. But what the light does when it enters the silicon, the photon gives up its energy, exciting an electron within the atomic structure of the silicon into a, a higher energy state. And in that state, the electron can move through the silicon. The job of people like myself who design solar cells is to get all those electrons moving off in the same direction. So then if you connect a electrical load, you know, like a heater or something between the top of the cell and the back of the cell, all these electrons going in the same direction flow through that load and you get the photons in the sunlight converted into electrons in the load, which is electrical energy. So it, it converts the sun's energy into electrical energy. Did you recognise the potential of solar right away? Like, did you have any sort of concepts about how much we would be using it in the future? I, I guess back in the 70s when I got involved, it was all a bit of a pipe dream, but um, there was oil embargoes in, in 73 in the US and President Nixon launched what was called Project Independence to, to try and get the US um, less dependent on oil. And so a whole lot of alternative energy options were analysed and solar cells was put on the table as one of these options. So all we had to do was take the cost out of the solar cells. And um, people uh, back then were projecting if we can get the cost out, it's going to be a really useful technology because there's no pollution and it's, you know, it's very simple to use and so on. So um, I, I guess from the early 70s, there was this thought that it could provide a large amount of power sometime in the future, but enormous uh, barrier in that the costs were just uh, thousands of times too high to be able to do that. Mm. It was expensive and of course the efficiency was, was pretty shot as well, but it, it's interesting that it was an oil embargo that was a major driver there, whereas now we're looking at rather than necessarily a lack of oil, a uh, lack of desire to use oil because of course the situation with the climate. How do you feel about where we're at right now when it comes to climate change? Yeah, you know, we've been slow off the mark in trying to address it, but fortunately the cost of the cells has come down very rapidly over the last decade and the timing has been just about perfect in that now there's real pressure for action to uh, mitigate climate change being developed. You know, the cells are now cheap enough to use to do that. You know, back um, around the turn of the century, people were doing studies of how much it had cost to create a carbon-free society. And in fact, uh, you know, American economist uh, William Nordhaus got the Nobel Prize for his studies of how, you know, how much it was going to cost. But with the solar cells now being so cheap, you're going to save money by converting to them. You know, it's a completely different scenario from what people imagined only 20 years ago in that now solar and wind have become so cheap that you can change to them without any economic disbenefit, but actually a gain. Where are we actually sitting at the moment with solar? How does it fit into the energy mix, perhaps here in Australia and, and more broadly across the globe? Yeah, well, last financial year, um, 13 to 14% of um, electricity in Australia was generated from solar and a similar amount from wind, slightly less, and then slightly less again from hydro. So about a third of our electricity was generated from renewables, um, you know, whereas uh, 10 years earlier, it would have been mostly just the hydro that was uh, the renewable um, supplier of electricity. Uh, but that number is going up very rapidly year by year. So I think it's doubling every three years. 
So, you know, like in three years' time, we'll be up to 26%. And if that trend continues, we'll be up to 50% by 2030. And I fully expect we will be. So 50% of our electricity, you know, as soon as 2030 could be supplied by solar. And, you know, there'll be mainly economics that are driving it sort of with favourable legislation because of the climate change issue. So, um, you know, that's all that needed. The economic benefit is there. You just need a favourable environment um, for the uptake of the solar. And uh, we're going to see big changes over this decade and the coming one. Can you tell me what does efficiency really mean? I mean it's, it's something you've made huge improvements on year on year. In fact, you've, you've held records for, for the efficiency of the cells that you've created. Talk us through the problem of efficiency and, and how you've surmounted it. Yeah, so efficiency is a very important parameter of the cell and it's one that we've been concentrating on for decades now. But um, the efficiency is just the ratio of the electrical energy you get out of the cell to the total energy and the sunlight falling onto it. But when we started back in the 70s, the, the record silicon cell had 16 to 17% efficiency. So about a sixth, one sixth of the energy in sunlight was getting converted to electricity. You know, that's not very high, but because the source of the energy is free and abundant and, and not used anyhow, you know, it sort of really doesn't matter from that perspective what the efficiency is, but it does determine the amount of cell area you need. So it determines how much glass you need in the panel that the cells package into and the amount of aluminium in the frame and, you know, a whole lot of other things like that, mounting structures. You know, even the transport of the cell to the site, all, all determined by the efficiency because it determines the area of the cell that you need. So our initial work, we concentrated on trying to improve the efficiency of the cell. So back in the early days, 20% was regarded as the four minute mile of the photovoltaic area. You know, that's what you might reach one day if everything went well. Um, so that became a focus of our work, trying to make the first 20% efficient cell. So in 1983, we got our first world record. And, and these world records are, are sort of certified in that um, to be able to claim one, you really have to have the cell independently measured by a lab that's regarded as an authority in how to measure them. So we had this 18% efficiency certified. So that was the world's first 18% efficient silicon cell. And that started us on a 30-year period where we held the record for all but about six months within that, within that time frame, or 31 years actually. So 30 years we, we held the record. That has been one of the key factors, you know, not the main one really, but one of the key ones in reducing the cost because you reduce all the amount of chemicals you need in processing and all that kind of stuff as well as you, as you improve the efficiency. So we aimed, once we got our first 18%, we aim for, to get the first 20%. You know, it's, it's a bit like the Olympics, you know, it's like getting a world record was like getting a gold medal and you've got plenty of motivation to push for the next one. A real buzz when you uh, knew you'd got a new record. Um, so we got to 20% in a few steps uh, in 1985 and that attracted international attention. And I think the powerhouse might have even done a display of our 20% efficient cell back then, but that was, um, uh, you know, our really established us as leading group internationally in this field. But I'd done a, a paper a couple of years earlier that showed that you should be able to get to 25%. So 
you know, 30% was the ultimate limit, but you should be able to get to 25%. So we pushed on and we eventually did get to the 25% efficiency. And uh, the cell that did that is what's called the PERC cell, P-E-R-C. It stands for a very technical term, passivated emitter and rear cell. And emitter just means the top. So it just means we fixed up the top and the bottom of the cell. Um, so that was, that was what we were focusing on because the, the bulk regions of the cell, there wasn't too much further needed doing there. Um, but the surfaces of the cell were where a lot of the uh, loss in efficiency was occurring. So we fixed up the top initially and then uh, that got us the 18% and everything. And then we, uh, after we got to the 20%, we fixed up the back. So fixing up the top and the back, we eventually got us to 25. And the PERC was the vehicle for doing that. And uh, last year, 91% of the cells made worldwide were PERC. And um, the whole world acknowledges that it's Australian uh, developed and invented technology. How efficient are you going to get is there a hard limit? Yeah, for, for a silicon cell, there's a hard limit around 30%. So is there something that could smash through that 30%? Is there a material, something other than silicon? So that's what we're working on now. We're trying to um, improve the efficiency substantially. So silicon has a, a photon threshold that's in the near-infrared um, so it, it can convert all the red photons and even photons with lower energy in the infrared. But some other uh, material similar to silicon can only convert blue photons, for example. And they can convert the blue photons more efficiently than the silicon because they don't waste as much of the blue photons energy as a silicon cell does. So if you can stack a cell that's good at converting blue photons on top of a silicon cell, you, the sunlight can fall on the stack and the cell that's good at the blue photons grabs all the blue photons and converts them. But because the uh, other photons don't have enough energy to create any excitations in that material, they just pass through to the cell underneath. And uh, if it's a silicon cell, it loves the red photons, so it converts them efficiently. So by um, you know, parceling out the photons in that way, you can get a higher efficiency than um, just from a single silicon cell. So adding one cell to silicon, you get like a 40% relative boost, but you can go further and add, you know, virtually infinite number of cells on top of the silicon, giving them a smaller and smaller range of photon energies to convert. And uh, you can go up to a 68% efficiency in principle is compared to 30% for a silicon cell. So that's um, what we're working on, trying to find a material that you can stack on to silicon that can convert some of the high energy photons that the silicon doesn't handle too well. But the, the problem is, you know, silicon has four attributes that make it really good for solar. It's um, abundant, so that means it's cheap and readily available. It's um, non-toxic, which is great if you're gonna be installing them over 1% of the world's land area. You know. You only have to cover 1% of the Earth's land surface area to generate all our primary energy from solar. So it doesn't sound like much, but if you work out how many square kilometres that is, it's quite a large area involved. It's got to be stable. So you, some manufacturers now warrant the solar panels for 40 years. So everyone warrants for at least 25, but some are doing up to 40 now. 
and uh, it's got to be able to give high efficiency is the other feature. And that's, so those four attributes, we haven't found a material that ticks all those four boxes in the same way that silicon does, but we're working hard on it. Uh, that's, that's our big challenge. We think um, the, the efficiency of the panels can double uh, in the fullness of time. So by 2050, the solar panels are now about 20% efficient. The ones you can buy commercially will be more like 40% efficient further down the track. This work has been done through the, the University of New South Wales Centre for Advanced Photovoltaics. 120 PhD students, I think, so far. Is that, is that right? What, what's some of the work that they've done? Because they're, they're all around the world, aren't they? Yeah, so if I personally have supervised 120 PhD students in my career. Many of them have gone on to do great things. But one in particular was Dr. Zhengrong Shi, who I think many people might have heard of, but he's famous because he became the first solar billionaire. So he was my 12th PhD student um, of 120. Uh, he was a really good student and uh, we had him employed in one of our spin-off companies, but he was getting uh, anxious to actually do something real rather than research. He wanted to set up a manufacturing plant to make some, you know, some type of solar cell. So he, he was uh, born in China, although Australian citizen by this stage, but he um, became interested in setting up solar cell manufacturing in China, where there was uh, no commercial manufacturing occurring there then. And uh, we'd been over a few years earlier to look for the possibility of joint ventures to get some of our technology into production there and just looked hopeless. So we said, oh, you know, Zhengrong, you know how hopeless that's going to be. <laughs> we, I was very pessimistic about his chances of success. Anyhow, we gave him all the help we could. And uh, he set up the first manufacturing line in China in 2002. Uh, but he made a huge success of it because Germany had just started a, a feed-in tariff program that um, sort of subsidised the cost of installing solar. Even though the cells were much more expensive than they're now, you could go to the bank and get a loan to buy the cells because you'd get paid the amount um, for the electricity they generated that would cover the cost of loan repayment. So it was a feed-in tariff scheme that uh, gave you an exaggerated price for the panels to make it economically viable. And that really built up the market. And Zhengrong could make the cells a lot more cheaply in China than the German manufacturers could. So he was doing well selling the cells into the market and using the profits to expand his production. So his, his success in doing this was noted by um, some US investment banks like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, some of the big names in the venture capital business. And um, they encouraged him, he was backed, like he had to peddle his wares around China so that he wasn't sort of cobbled up instantly when he said he wanted to start making cells. But uh, Wuhan government twisted the arms of a few local companies that were profitable and they put in a million each. So he started with $6 million. And um, these venture capital companies um, uh, encouraged him to do a management buyout uh, of the original Chinese investors and replaced them by investors like Goldman Sachs that were well known internationally. And um, the original investors were really happy because they thought they had done their dough you know, on this no hope venture. But it turned out that they got paid 18 times what they'd put in. So they were very happy. And they groomed um, Zhengrong's company for listing on the New York Stock Exchange in 2005. 
So it was the first uh, privately owned Chinese company to list on the New York Stock Exchange. And it also turned out to be a huge success. It was the biggest technology float of 2005, with Zheng Rong just uh, listing a small part of his company shares, but um, it raised 400 million for a small part of his company. So he instantly became a solar billionaire because he owned a large part of the company by this stage. So that was really good for Zheng Rong. He had this 400 million where, you know, a few years earlier he had 6 million. So um, plenty of opportunity to expand much more quickly and everything. And um, between 2005 and 2010, there were 10 Chinese companies manufacturing cells or interested in manufacturing cells that got listed on the US exchanges. And six of those 10 um, are in the top 10 of manufacturers these days. Zheng Rong is probably my best known student because of that huge uh, success um, that he made and the way he triggered that sort of industrial transformation. So all these cashed up companies started competing on a market that was a little bit artificial because it was this German feed-in tariff scheme that was encouraging it. And the only way for them to sell what they were making was to be able to drop their costs. <laughs> so there was a massive drop in cost with, you know, soon afterwards with all these cashed up companies competing for what was a limited market. And the, the six that are still uh, in there today were able to do that and still remain profitable. So they're the ones that were successful in keeping up with the dropping costs as the market um, forced them to reduce the costs. It's incredible to me that not only are you and your team making these solar cells just better and better and better all the time, but then also the same people are all helping to make them cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and more widely used. I wonder for you, what achievements are you most proud of? Let's go in your work and also just personally. I don't think we could be relying on solar to mitigate climate change in the same way that we are now, you know, like the um, International Energy Agency's latest strategy for getting us to net zero by 2050 calls for the, you know, immediate and rapid uptake of solar and wind. And the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, their most recent um, publication on climate change mitigation says the same thing, you know, the taking up solar and wind is the cheapest way of, of um, reducing carbon emissions quickly. So I don't think that all would have happened without um, Cheng Rong's initiative in setting up in China. And we played a big part in it, you know, in helping him get the finance and all that kind of stuff that he needed and helping him technically set up a production line that was set up some by some of my technical people helping him get the production up and going and so on. So we played a big part in um, triggering the transformation that resulted in the cells being the present low cost. So I'm probably proud of that. And then the perk started getting taken up from about 2017. 2018, it became the major cell in production, but the uptake of that technology reduced the cost of the cells by about a factor of two, we calculate. So we had an additional sort of impact later in the days through the perk. So we've really done a lot to get the solar cells to the cost that they're at now. So I'm very proud of that, obviously. In Australia, whilst we were kind of developing this love for solar, there have also been loud naysayers. I, I think probably far fewer than the volume of their naysaying might suggest. But, you know, the old, oh, when the sun's not shining arguments. 
Where are we now when it comes to that? Is there, is there any point in hearing those arguments anymore? I think they're becoming more muted, but um, you know, the, the, we do need to change the way that we do things because you know, solar obviously you can't rely on it at night time. Um, but um, the electricity supply network has had to rely on uh, electricity not being available when it's needed for a long time because you know a, a big coal plant can suddenly drop offline, for example. So it's had to have what are calling spinning reserves just to counter that sort of emergency, but those spinning reserves are very good for uh, countering when sun goes behind a cloud or the wind stops blowing for a while or, or something like that. So the spinning reserves within the grid network uh, have been adequate when you've got small amounts of solar installed. But obviously, as you get more and more, um, you're going to have to do something different to provide for the storage. But interestingly, like for nuclear, you've got sort of the opposite problem because with nuclear, you essentially have to run the plants flat out. You can, like, like France is famous for having plants that you can turn up and down, but they don't do it. If you look at the nuclear output in France, they just operate them constant output because as you vary the output, you go through thermal gradients within the whole reactor system and so on, which increases the need for maintenance. So it's costly to adjust the power output of a nuclear plant. In some countries like Japan, you either got to go off or flat out, there's no option of running it. So in Japan, for example, they installed a lot of what's called pumped hydro for pump, pump water uphill when you've got too much electricity getting supplied and then let it run downhill when you need a bit more and turn a turbine. But Japan did that because of their large reliance on nuclear and not being connected to any other country. They had to balance things themselves. So that, that's been one storage mechanism that's been available um, you know, since the 70s because when the nuclear uh, uptake started occurring. Uh, but that's ideal for solar as well. And we have a, a Snowy 2 hydro system going in, which relies on that principle. So you can use it for solar as well, except sort of upside down, you pump water uphill in midday and let it run it down at night time. So that, that's one mechanism that is already available. And then with the uh, recent development of, of electrical batteries, particularly for electric vehicles, and Elon Musk's famous big battery in South Australia, that's been a huge success. It does a lot of things within the electricity network are much better than could be done before. So not only does it provide storage, but it does a lot of things, balancing things that you need to do in the grid network that are much better than how it was done before. So we're gonna see a lot more batteries also added to the grid to provide storage. The other thing, Australia is very fortunate with renewables and we're such a big country. So geographical diversity is really important because if it's sunny in Queensland, it might be cloudy in, in New South Wales or vice versa. So the geographical diversity means if you have a good transmission system, and the transmission system runs all the way from North Queensland around to South Australia now, but if you, if you reinforce that so you can send heaps of power from one direction to the other, you can use that geographical diversity between sunny and non-sunny regions, but also between windy and non-windy regions. So South Australia and Tasmania, they're the best areas for wind, and up in North Queensland is also very good. But um, if you, not only do you have geographical diversity within each technology, but wind and solar complement each other very well in that the wind blows mainly in winter 
and mainly at night. So it's like a, a good match to the solar. So that reduces the amount of storage you need by having the grid strongly interconnected so you can shuttle power around from one region to the other. So that's the other thing that's needed. So you have pumped hydro, uh, battery storage, this transmission ability, and then the other big hope is hydrogen. So that um, will provide a storage medium that you can store electricity indefinitely in hydrogen if you want to store huge amounts for a long period. So I think I think things are pretty pretty well covered. So there's there's no real technical obstacle to supplying 100% of our uh, energy from uh, renewables. What does the future look like to you? In terms of climate, where solar sits? Yeah, so I think we're starting to see a bit of a push to, for solar uptake globally, worldwide. And I think that's going to accelerate and probably mainly because of the economics. I think um, many of the incumbent companies within the energy generation industry um, are now accept that the uh, future of coal generation, for example, uh, is not, not looking all that promising. So they've got to find a way of transitioning their company to a future that re relies less on fossil fuels. So I think there's going to be accelerating interest in the uptake of solar. And um, over the last year or so, we've been very much supply limited in, in the solar. So the uptake has really accelerated. You know, it could be the International Energy Agency, which in the past wasn't all that favourable uh, to renewables, but suddenly has changed its tune and now saying we've got to install them as quickly as we can. I think that could be one factor because that's a very influential um, body who many governments rely on for advice. And in the past, they were saying, yeah, renewables can do a little bit in the future, but um, you know, not all that much. But nowadays they're saying, yeah, it's, we've, got to, we've got to go quickly if we really want to address climate change. It's really the, the best option we have is to install renewables as quickly as we can. And then the um, Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change coming out with similar advice, whereas they, they used to analyse all these future scenarios and it was always um, fairly limited use of renewables in their scenarios. So it took a while, it's taken a while for everyone to catch up with this reality of these really rapidly reducing costs. You know, so over a 12 year period, the costs came down by a factor of 24. So it sounds quite remarkable, but between 2008 and 2020, that 12 year period, you know, the, the wholesale price of the solar panels came down by a factor of 24. And that's all just documented in the literature that keeps track of these uh, prices. So that's just a, it just took the community as a whole, I think, a, a while to catch up with that transition that occurred because back then the solar was expensive and people were thinking, you know, it's too expensive to, to use. But then all of a sudden, you know, like that's nearly overnight in geological terms at least, um, you know, you've got these cheap solar cells. I think um, by 2050, most of our primary energy will come from solar with wind playing a subsidiary role because of their complementary nature that I mentioned before. Thank you so much for joining me and having this chat, this, this wonderful conversation. Please join me in thanking uh, Martin. The 
follow the program online, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit the 100 Climate Conversations exhibition or join us for a live recording like this one. You can go to 100climateconversations.com and just search for 100 Climate Conversations in your podcatcher of choice.